Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. If you um, have not yet uh, find either if you printed it out or find on your screen the text sheet that was sent around in the Shabbat bulletin yesterday, a different text sheet that was sent around for the other service. Um, this is the one that I prepared. And because we're going to be looking at five or six or seven different texts, and it'll be easier if you have it somewhat in front of you. But let me let me build up to up to this. As I shared at the opening um, event for Hanukkah on Thursday night, one of the events that Rabbi Schatz and her team have put together for this community so that really every night of this holiday we can be together even from a distance. I shared that in my rabbinic, my rabbinic weeks in terms of my engagement with the weekly material are, they, they vary and sometimes they vary randomly. Um, I don't know if, if you think about this and there's no reason why you would because we all live our own lives. You don't live others' lives. In a normal week, I address and share and teach and comment on the Parsha sometimes between seven and 15 times in a week, right? Because I'm the kind of rabbi who, who likes being informed by what's happening in the weekly Parsha, whether I'm speaking at a bris or a baby naming or a wedding or a bar mitzvah or a board meeting or a Friday night talk or a meditation or a, you know what, I'm something from that week is speaking to me. Sometimes I jump around. Um, I jump around from different places in the Parsha. I certainly jump around uh, through different commentaries and by the time the week is done, if one had listened to me and if I'm listening to myself, a dozen different mini topics have been brought to light. And sometimes something grabs me early in the week and it stays with me and it continues to cook like a slow cooking chillant, uh, which we obviously miss from our time at shul. And this is one of those latter weeks. And I can in some ways thank uh, Larry Herman, who I know is on this Zoom call, and I think Rick Muller might be as well. Uh, for for this this week, and it really is a thanks. They invited me to participate in their Haftorah plethora, their weekly podcast, video podcast on the Haftorah. And because of that invitation, am I investigating this Haftorah in depth in a way that I hadn't in quite some time? Right, I'm I, I'm, I'm in relationship with this text, but I've not um, gone into it in depth for quite some time some of the imagery and particularly some of the questions about why we read it on Hanukkah stayed with me. So some of that I shared in the Haftarah Plethora podcast. If you've seen it, you, if you haven't seen it, you still can. And then they were, there was an expansion upon that idea. It actually ended up informing the meditation that I shared with the community on Wednesday. I, as some of you know, I share meditation every Wednesday and Friday at noon, both on Zoom and on Facebook. Um, and I want us to look at it. I want us to look at these, it's one full chapter of the book of Zechariah, the third chapter, plus a little bit of the chapter two and a little bit of chapter four. And the question I had you think about before we, before Sandra read the Haftarah was why you think the committee, let's, let's call it that, the committee of sages or rabbis who were choosing which prophetic section to read as a dessert to, this, to, um, to, the, to, to the Torah reading on Shabbat, of Hanukkah, why they would have chosen this one, a higher threshold to have chosen this one than a normal Haftarah, because as we said, this Haftarah is also uh, in its entirety, the Haftarah for another Parsha. 
And there are many possible answers. And I'd like to hear some of them before we start. So I believe at this point, everyone can unmute themselves. And if you would like to um, uh, unmute yourself to share, um, please do so. We might have a situation where two people are going at the same time, but that's okay, you'll figure it out. Um, if whether you read the commentary or uh, that, that gives the it's Chaim's explanation as to why this Hafsara was chosen or you're coming at it from your own, give me a reason. Give, give me an explanation for why this would have been a great choice. And again, I can't see everyone out there, so I'm just going to have to wait for someone to pipe up. Not by power, not by might, not by power. Okay, so Brent, you're going right there, which is great, and we're going to then build back up to it. But give me a two sentences why. Why is Zacharia's call for not by might, not by power, which you know, depending on which Jewish summer camp you grew up going to, you may have learned it as a song, not by might and not by power, but by spirit alone, shall we all live in peace? Why is that a Hanukkah message? Because it, 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 that we will get to where we, we need to be by our faith in God, not by our military might. The Hanukkah story, which arguably is a military victory, is treated as the power of God and and not the military victory is downplayed. So this is another example, I think, how uh, the prophets explain that that they, in their own way, uh, don't like military ventures and don't want to use military power to uh, acquire the possession of Jerusalem, and they have to do it by faith. So it's a it's a it's another stamp of the rabbinical preference for prayer and. Deeds of, of, of kindness and not using military power. Great, great. So let, let's name, let, let's linger on that for a second, and I want to hear other answers, and then we're going to look at the texts, right? We're dealing with, let's think of three different populations in our mind. There's the population of the generation that actually built the second temple to which the prophet of the Haftarah, Zechariah, is speaking to, right? That's a people who, who lived through the era of actually making it happen. There's the population of the Hashmonim, the Hasmoneans, who were, depending on how you think of the story, religious zealots who probably would not have thought that much of we um, secularized American um, Jews. Um, and also they were attached to a military um, campaign because uh, somehow in concert, right, the military defeat of the Assyrian Greeks and the spiritual rededication of Jewish life is what we would call it an, an erbuvia in, in Aramaic. It's it's a it's an it's a mixing, an intermingling that can't really be pulled out. Somehow combine those two things, create the story of Hanukkah. And then a couple of hundred years later, give or take, the rabbis who are the who are descendants of some of the people who are um of the of the of the Hanukkah era are actually now making decisions about what we should read to commemorate it. And so what you're offering is that the rabbinic class is looking backwards upon the, the, the events from the 165, 163, 162 BCE and saying, whatever you think you know, whatever Josephus tells you, whatever your historians tell you about that era, about Judah the Maccabee, and about spears and about killing the elephants of the Assyrian Greek warriors, remember that a couple of hundred years before that, Zechariah says, this spot is sanctified not because of military might. This spot is sanctified because of the spiritual might that is going to be um, lived out at this temple. 
That's one possibility. Yeah, you're so much more eloquent than I am. So yeah, <laughs> I I, uh, I don't know about that, but the, but I but I, that is that's the argument I think you were making, right? Yes. And that is a powerful argument, and we're going to build back the argument. But let me hear some some any others. Are there other explanations as to why? Yeah, Jennifer, why this haftarah for this holiday? Can I ask a kushi or can I ask a question to to help me decide whether I yeah. Have- so is why is Joshua the defendant? Is it because he was a uh, a military leader, and so is there is is that why he's being challenged? Um, yeah, and- it's an interesting real interesting real politic, right? That that is is probably deserving of its own class. Okay. But you've got in this ge- generation of 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 um, of Jewish. Uh, control over the land of Israel. You've got um, the, the the spiritual presence of the high priests, which Joshua is one of, and then you have the civic administration, which Zerubbabel represents. Right. They're supposed to be mingling together. They flank the menorah, and Zerubbabel himself is considered to be a descendant of King David, so he's got Yichus because he's just, he's a descendant from King David. Joshua has Yichus because he's a descendant of, of Aaron and, and, and the Levites. And um, it's, it's hard to know if, if in that scene where he's being kind of dressed down uh, and to, to, to be redressed in more glorious garments, if it's he himself is something about Joshua, the, this particular high priest or something about that, that, um, um, the cast, right? The, the, the population of high priests is something about that, um, that, that community that had allowed itself to become filthy and therefore needs to be redressed in beautiful garments, right? There are differences of opinions about that, but it, it may be Joshua qua Joshua, maybe Joshua qua representing a, a priestly class that we know. If, if you read the books of the prophets and, the, and um, as, as a piece of history, you know that both the kings and the priests were susceptible to all sorts of negative influences that take away some of the sheen of leadership around the temple. Thank you. You're welcome. So do you want to offer a thought then? Well, now I'm going to listen more. Okay. Anyone else? Why this haftarah? Any, is there a, a sentence, an image, a phrase, a, a, a thrust of this haftarah that makes it Hanukkah-ish? Going once? Yes, Larry Diane. There you go. Okay. okay. So I mean, this seems to be talking about a rededication of the temple after the return from Babel. So it basically parallels historically the rededication of the temple in the Hanukkah story. Great. So uh, another answer is it's, it's a little more of a, of a pshat answer, which is that the, there's a historical binding together of the commemoration that we're remembering in the holiday and of the moment that the Haftarah explains. And we'll remember that when we get to the third or fourth source as to um, the comparison between the choice of this Haftarah for the first for, for Hanukkah compared to the Haftarah, which is said if there are two Shabbatot of Hanukkah, which happens if obviously the first day of Hanukkah is Shabbat. Good. So there could be just the notion of Hanukkah rededicating the temple. This is a rededication of Jewish presence on that spot. That's it's the it's the set course of events that allowed the temple to be built on that spot anyway. Okay, let's look at the text a little bit. Ailey, 
Ellie wanted to say something. Oh, I didn't see. Who else? Ellie Lito. Ellie Vakasha. Yeah, there's a description of a menorah, the detailed description of a menorah. And I think that's very, uh, very important. Very good. Right? So in the fourth chapter of Zechariah, a couple of verses before Brant's Not by Might and Not by uh, Power, we've got a description of the primary symbol of this holiday, right? Uh, verse 2, Vayomer Eli, he said to me, Ma'ataro'eh, what do you see? Va'omar, I responded, Ra'iti, I have seen, I see a beautiful gold menorah, the gula al-rosha, and there's a kind of a bowl above it, v'shiva nerotehaleha, and seven candles upon it. It's, by the way, a menorah, not a chanukiah, right? It's the menorah of the number and the style from the temple. So maybe it's just the image of the menorah that is the connective thread. Okay, let's look at the, t- the text, and I'll, I'll read them all out loud in case there's anybody following along who doesn't have it in front of them. Uh, the first one actually just comes from the Haftarah itself, the fourth chapter of Zechariah, verse 6. It's the one that um, Brand pointed us to. Vaya'an vayomer elaylemor. He answered, and he said back to me, so this is Zechariah saying, this is what God wants to say to Zubabel, who is Zubabel, the kind of civic leader of the generation. It's interesting that this message is given to Zubabel and not to Joshua. You who are in charge of logistics and fundraising and gathering the, 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 the might of the people that would need to actually build a structure. I'm telling you, it's not with Chayel, Chayel is an interesting Hebrew word. In, in, in modern Hebrew, it means a fighting force, right? Chayel Avir is the air force. A Chayel is a soldier. In biblical he- Hebrew, it doesn't only have a military connotation, right? An Eshet Chayel, I don't think we're supposed to be understanding it as a female soldier in that book, in that verse from Proverbs, but a woman of valor. That's how it's often translated. I'm not sure valor is the best translation of chayel, but here it seems to be in parallel to koach. Koach is fourth, strength, muscle. It's not going to be with the military um, achievements, and it's not going to be with force. It doesn't say what isn't, right? There's an, impl- there's an implied. Not by might and not by power. What? Whatever. The, the building of this temple, the construction of your society, the construction of of your of your life itself is not going to be with muscle, ki'im beruchi, but rather with my spirit, amar adonai tzvaot, said the God of hosts. It's an interesting, by the way, um, moniker for God in this verse. That's worth pausing on as well, because adonai tzvaot, right? There are a lot of ways that God's described in, in the Tanakh. Adonai tzvaot is a rather militaristic image of God. Right, the God of the hosts. What does that mean? The host, the God who has the heavenly hosts of heavenly fighters along with God. So, in the moment where God is, says that you are not going to achieve your ends with might and power, God is referring to God's self as the God of celestial power. So maybe that is ironic, or maybe it is reinforcing the fact that there is enough power in the heavenly hosts through spiritual um, connections. You do not need to rely on your spears and on your shields. Okay. That's the verse itself. Look at the next text, which is from the Babylonian, Babylonian Talmud tractate Megillah. It's in the end of Megillah that a lot of the liturgical um, choices that we take for granted because we've inherited a fixed liturgical setting 
are enumerated. So where you find which Haftarot are done for which holidays, it's all in this section of Masechet Megillah, which at its core is focusing on Megillah and Esther, but has a lot of, a lot of shul-based davening uh, rules are enumerated there. Okay, so this is what the Talmud says. Bacharo and the and the Talmud, if you're not used to it, is a very terse. So you have to you have to really fill in. And you see on the left side of the translation, the words in bold are just the translations from the words of the Hebrew, and everything else is an interpolation to make it clear what the words are saying. Bachanuka Banisiim. On Hanukkah, the Torah reading that you do are the princes. That's the Maftir Aliyah that Aaron read before, the gifts that the princes gave to the dedication, not of the second temple, obviously, not even of the first temple, but of the Mishkan in the desert. Umaftirin, and what do we do for a Haftarah? And a reminder that, that the word Haftarah is the noun of the verb lehaftir, maftirin, which means to take leave. It's really the ending of the service. We read, from the book of Zechariah, chapter, starting with chapter 2, B'nerot de Zechariah. It's interesting how the Talmud mentions it. The Talmud says the choice here has to do with the Nerot. So it actually accords mostly with what Eli said, right? Very terse language. It, 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 it basically nicknames this Haftorah, Nerot Zechariah. Zechariah's candles. Ah, if the nickname of the Haftorah is Zechariah's candles, then the connection must be the menorah itself. The e mikle shte Shabbatot, if it happens that there are two Shabbatot, because Shabbat is eight, uh, Hanukkah is eight days, so if the first day of sh- is Shabbat, then the eighth day will be Shabbat. Kamaita benerot de Zachariah, on the first Shabbat, Kamaita means the first one, you read the Haftarah of Zachariah. Batraita, on the second one, you read from the Book of Kings, number one, chapter seven, starting with verse 40, benerot Shlomo. Other candles. What candles? Not candles of a haftarah related to the second temple. That's ours. But candles that appear in the haftarah related to the first temple, King Solomon's temple, built in the 970s, 960s BCE. Okay? And if this had been a year where we had two Shabbatot, on the second Shabbat of Hanukkah, we read that one. Turn to the next source. Rashi. I want to tell you something about Rashi before we read this text. Rashi comments on pretty much every line of the Torah and of the entire Bible. And Rashi comments on pretty much every line of the Talmud. And of course, sometimes the Talmud quotes verses from the Bible. And sometimes it's interesting to compare what Rashi says on the verse as it appears in the Talmud compared to what Rashi says on the verse itself, right? So here we're going to have Rashi on this section of the Talmud that is quoting from the book of Zechariah, and then we're going to see Rashi on the verse of Zechariah itself. So Rashi on the line from the Talmud, on the phrase, Nerot de Zechariah, that nickname for our Haftarah, the candles of Zechariah, Rashi gives us the opening words that Sanjo read so beautifully, Roni v'simchi, translate here, shout for joy, it's really... Um, Roni means be joyful. Simchi means be happy. Al shame, ra'iti v'hine menorat zahav kula. So Eli Baruch Shakivanta. Rashi and the Talmud agrees with you. Why do we read the holiday that the Talmud nicknames Nerot the Zachariah? Rashi says it's from the section beginning rise and um, and be very joyful, Israelites, because of the verse from. Uh, early on in chapter two that we just read before, behold, I see a gold menorah. That's a 
that's a good reading of the Talmud, right? That's one, one of the three readings that we uh, had out there was, uh, was connected to the menorah. Okay. Now look at the next source, Beit Yosef. What's the Beit Yosef? You need to learn a little bit of halachic history here. Uh, the fir- the, you may have heard the phrase, the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. It was written by Rabbi Yosef Karo in the 16th century in Sfat. It was based on four sections, four columns. And that division of four columns was based on a book written about 150, 180 years before that called the Tur or Arba Turim, the four columns. And the Arba Turim was the first halachic work in the Middle Ages after Maimonides' Mishnah Torah to gain a lot of influence. And many commentators wrote commentaries on it. The Beit Yosef is the commentary on the tour written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, who soon after is going to write his own code of Jewish law called the Shulchan Aruch. So this is not from, from the Shulchan Aruch, but this is from the author of the Shulchan Aruch's commentary on the tour. And this is on the, uh, the, 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 the fourth of the, the, the column called Orach Chaim, the way of life, which has in it the laws of Davin and the laws of Shabbat and things like that. And here's where we get to. The Korin Parshat Naso Benesi'im. So we read from Parshat Naso in the Torah reading of Hanukkah from the princes. Mishneh Beperek Bnei Ha'ir. This is said explicitly in the chapter of Talmud called Bnei Ha'ir, which is the chapter of Talmud that we quoted from before, from the 31st page of Megillah. B'Chanukah Benesi'im. We read this already. Hanukkah, we read from the princes. Umaftir b'nerot is Zechariah. And we do a haftarah from the candles of Zechariah. Roni Simchi, the joyful Israel. V'im chalbo shtei Shabbatot. If there were two Shabbatot of Hanukkah. Maftirin b'shnayim. On the second one, we read b'mlachim from the Book of Kings. B'nerot shalshlomo from the candles of Solomon. Pashut, the parak b'nehayir. That's also explicit and simple in the Talmud. The Chatav Haran, he quotes a sage called the Ran Rabbeinu Nisim of Gerondi, a Spanish commentator. Af agav denerot to Shlomo Kadimi. He says, wouldn't you have reversed it? Wouldn't the first, if you have two Haftarot, each referring to the construction of one of the temples, wouldn't you think that the primary Haftarot, the one that you read every year, should be the first temple, right? The, the first one built by Solomon, whereas if there happened to be two Shabbatot, then you read a little bit, bit of Zechariah. He says, no. The Ran says that even though that the candles of Solomon Kadimi are first, they're the first temple, despite that, it's more preferred preferred for us the Zechariah. We read the Zechariah Haftarah every year in Hanukkah. Why? Mishum de nevuot atid ninu. I'm going to translate and tell you why th- this is an answer that, that, that says darsheni, that says there's something missing here. The Ran's explanation is because the haftarah of Zechariah has to do with nevuot atid, prophecies of things that are going to happen in the future, they are preferable. So his argument is this. Yeah, we would have chosen to read Solomon's haftarah on every year in Hanukkah, but since that's describing something that already took place, whereas Zechariah's Haftarah is describing something that's about to take place in the future, the prophecy about how the temple is going to be built, that's why it's preferable. I don't buy it. And I don't buy it, meaning I think there's something else brewing here. 
There's something else brewing from the Talmudic era and still in the, mid, in the Middle Ages. This is the Beit Yosef writing in the year 1550, 1560, that's still trying to find out what is it about Zachariah's words that gave it the significance that it has as being the Haftarah every year on Hanukkah. And the fact that he quotes the Ran, and the Ran's answer is not so compelling, to, at least to me, suggests that there is something that something else in this story that needs to be uncovered. Okay. Thoughts or questions for, so far? Now we look at Rashi again, but not Rashi on the Talmud quoting Zechariah, but Rashi on Zechariah itself. Okay. Rashi's co- linear commentary on the prophet Zechariah on our verse or set of verses um, dealing with the, the not by might, not by power, the part that, that Brandt um, quoted before. So we, the verse, the quote from the verse is Zed Devar Adonai El Zubavel. This is the word of God from uh, to Zubavel, again, that civic manager of this prophet. Zesi Manlacha Lahavtiach Zubavel. The way Rashi on the verse explains it is this image of not by might and not by power is some kind of a symbol of the promise that God is trying to give to Zubavel. Keshem Shahazetim. Just as you notice that the olives and the olive oil that are present in Zechariah's image and are present before you, Zubavel, miraculously are, are be, become what they're supposed to be of their own accord. Right? So Rashi is saying what's being told to Zubavel is you're looking at a um, a cruise of o- olive oil, and somehow this olive oil became olive oil without the standard procedure. No one had to step on it. No one had to press it. No one had to use their muscles. Somehow this, these olives became olive oil of their own. L'chol dvarav, kach lo v'chayel lo v'choach. Similarly, Zubavel, you are overseeing this process. I want you to use this olive oil as a metaphor. It, metaphor, it's not going to be through might. It's not going to be through power. You're not going to build my house the normal way you would think you would have done it. And again, remember the introduction, this Haftarah is coming after a strange and frustrating, probably infuriating delay. Ezra has brought the Israelites back to the land of Israel. They are permitted to build it, and it's not going up. It's getting delayed and delayed and delayed. So Zechariah teases out an image of a of miraculous olive oil coming from miraculously self-squeezing olives. And God's message is, that's the way they're going to build the temple. Now, if you get that kind of a message, you know, what do you do with, what, what do you do with it? And if I, if I had gotten the message five years ago, you know, Rabbi, you're not going to build a new sanctuary with wood or steel or fundraising. God will do it. Right? God will do it. It's like the the, um, the, the, the the classic joke, right? I, I sent you the helicopter. I sent you the boat. I sent you the I sent you the the, the car. But you didn't you, you didn't participate yourself in saving yourself from the flood. Look at Rashi says in Kiim Beruchi, but rather it's going to be through my spirit. Ani eten ruchi al Dariush, that's Darius. I will put my spirit upon the current Persian king Darius, and he will permit you. There is another version of Rashi. That Samech Alch means Sirin um, Acherin. There's another way of, of, of uh, another 
text of Rashi that says, and he will command you, leave note to build. He's got to make the entire building of the temple come out of his own coffers, not your own. He's going to help you. With wheat, the yain and wine, the shemen veitzin, with oil and with wood. So on the verse, Rashi says that what's significant here is not the candles themselves, but that this process is going to come to be through its own spiritual power. It's very hard to actually manage a process if you believe in it. It's also, I think, very hard or very dangerous to put too much faith in your own um, ability to gather resources and turn them with your power, influence, authority into what you're dreaming about. Usually there is, a re- there is some kind of a relationship between the actual uh, me- mechanism of the process coming to be and some other um, spiritual coming together that had to have been present as well for the success to be what the success is. That's what Rashi says on the verse. Zubavel, you may be a civil engineer, but the civil engineering is not what's going to make this temple stand. Um, I'm going to skip the Isaiah um, quote uh, for now, just because um, I'm not sure we're going to have time for it. If you want to read it on your own, Isaiah in chapter 11, it's not, not our Haftorah here, gives another example of the type of leadership and vision that a Jewish leader, that a God-believing leader is supposed to be leading with, not only with physical prowess, but with a sense that, that God's presence is what is driving everything. Um, maybe just we'll, 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 we'll look at one verse. Um, yeah, well, okay, let's link on it for a minute. Look at verse 3. In that, in that quote from Isaiah, who says that there's going to be a sprout from the tribe of uh, Jesse, Yishai. And what kind of a leader is this person going to be? Uh, somebody, I think, is um, unmuted. Should probably just mute again. Veharicho biyirat Adonai. This is verse three. This person will 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 smell have a have a, have a sense of just around him. The uh, the awe that is required for God, the lola mare a navi spoke will not just judge things based on what seems to be right in front of his eyes. The lola mishma was navi It's not just what he hears that's going to prove a point. The shafat betzedek dalim. Such an interesting contrast. If you don't just follow your eyes and don't just follow your ears, but you rather are try try to attune yourself to some other greater power and force out there. Then, then you'll be able to judge the impoverished with a sense of justice. Only in that situation, we'll be able to figure out what the lowly of the land will need. will strike down evil lands with his strong words. will bring down the mighty ones with his lips. The Hayat Sedek Ezor Motnav, it'll be righteousness around his loins, the Hemuna Ezor Khalatsav, and faith around his body. And interestingly, this is the section that leads immediately into the messianic image of a lion lying down with a lamb. 
So Isaiah has another image of what it means to lead. It's not just leading with, um, with force and authority and power. It's leading with, by being attuned to what God expects of this society. And that's what's going to bring justice. Okay. Look at the next source. This is the Malbim. Malbim is a Ukrainian uh, sage by Mayor Leibush Yechiel Wisser, um, who lived in the 19th century. And this is his commentary on our verse from Zechariah. Vaya'an vayomer Eli al-Devar Adonai, Eli zedvar Adonai al-Zubabel. This is what God said to Zubabel. What's going on here, says the Malbim? Hodialo informed him. Just like in this menorah, this is similar to Rashi. There is a hint of the word of God in this menorah, this menorah of Zechariah, the menorah that we think may be the linkage between this Haftarah and Haftarah, but it's not just the presence of the menorah itself, according to the Malbim. And God's promise to Zubabel, that he promised him, Lemur, saying, Lo v'chaya b'lo v'choach, or again, we're getting used to these words, it's not with might and not with power, Shebe'et yavi et avdo, when God will bring forth his servant, Semach mizera zubavel, some descendant of zubavel, Az tiyeh hanhagat adonai bivli emtsa'i. Such an interesting phrase. Hanhagat adonai bivli emtsa'i. The, the, the way of God, how did I translate it? The, uh, the will of God will be manifest in the world almost without an intermediary. Lo ayedeha ma'arechet, not by means of any system which can refer to a military system or even a civic system. She'alzet sarichel, she'itgaber b'derech hadeva. For that to happen, for there to be the conquest of a, of a civil or military um, project, you need some kind of a chayel, some kind of a force to overcome the, uh, the obstacles in a natural way. That's not the case here. Actually, for this to happen, you need an internal koach. So the koach primi here is in contradistinction to a military koach. You need an internal strength. Miracle does not settle upon something empty. I want to linger on this for a little bit because this is, to me, a, a linchpin in what is significant about this Haftarah. All these texts are building towards the idea that leaders and all people get used to the notion that it's from what they have been able to make happen with the, with the authority of their position or the persuasiveness of their words or the physical ability of their muscles, that's what accomplishes things. The Malbim here is saying that there's got to be a koach primi, it's got to be an internal strength, a strength that is linked to something um, divine, something spiritual, something that is beyond fiber and bone and muscle. Because if you don't have that internal strength, then the miracles that might be around the corner are not going to be able to come to be, and they're not going to get into your system. I'll tell you where my mind went when I, when I read this. And I, uh, this is part of the meditation I did on Wednesday. I make this mistake all the time. I make this mistake all the time. I, because it's so easy to rely on the most powerful 
weapons you have at your disposal at any given time, it's very hard not to use them. If you know you can raise a voice and get something accomplished, it takes a lot of koach primi, internal strength, not to do so. If you know you can turn the screw on someone and it'll result in the project getting done, it's very hard not to do so. If you are in a position of authority with a child, with an employee, with a member of your system, it's very hard to restrain yourself from using that hierarchical structure to get things accomplished. And it has probably been that way since as long as we humans have been evolving. And I believe that a lot of this material that is now being thrown against the Hanukkah story is a rejection of that basic way of being. Rather, the Malbim, I think, is inviting us to, to consider, you have to prepare your own soul, your own spirit, to have a different kind of strength so that the, the miracle of things getting done without your muscles, without your flexing your muscles, will be permitted to, to happen in the world. And I think that is a miraculous process. I think it is a miraculous process when we're able to quiet the urge to just push things to get done and push people in the direction we want them to go, to go and use softer, more restrained, um, and more, more spiritual forces in a system. Look at Radak. Radak is uh, Provence in the Middle, middle Ages. Um, he says something similar on, um, on our verse. He said, not in strength and not in might. Just as you've seen, the construction of this menorah was somehow built of its own. Below Adam, without a person, didn't even set up the candles. Without a person having ignited the flames. This is how the building will be built. You can imagine, again, the person hearing this saying, what are you talking about? How is any of this going to get done if I don't force it to get done? The spiritual message is it will, it can, if you rely on a different sense of where power comes from in the world. Ela baruach ha'el, rather through the spirit of God, barach may God's name be blessed and may his will be done. To come back to where we began with the choice of this Haftarah for Hanukkah. And I think Brant, Brant nailed it, and I want to expand that in a little more and end with um, the, the words of Professor Eric Myers, who is a professor of Jewish studies at Duke University. The, I think the rabbis understand because they, they, knew, they, they knew how things were and they, they knew history, that the Assyrian Greeks were not going to be sent away from Judea simply with davening. And I think I, I would, I would, I would, I'd like to think you, you know that I am of the opinion that, um, that, that just davening fervently for things is not the kind of spiritual strength that I'm talking about here that it can replace an army when an army is needed and can replace authority when authority is needed. I think there's something more subtle going on. The rabbis do not want the dominant story of Hanukkah to be that just a military army was more powerful than another, but that a people's indomitable spirit 
was made manifest and that they found a way to um to 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 live to live to live out a a, a godly life and a divi- and a divine life even if the the military might was not um was not present for them in that exact exact moment look at professor eric myers the meaning of hanukkah this article he wrote about 6 years ago uh maybe i'll have someone read this out someone who hasn't um hasn't shared yet today who do i see out here uh jeff do you want to unmute yourself jeff altman and read what is hanukkah about What is Hanukkah about? Normally, when we think of Hanukkah, we associate it with the miracle of the temple menorah burning for eight days without sufficient oil, or the victory of the Maccabees over the Seleucid Greeks. As you might well imagine, the celebration of Hanukkah in Israel emphasizes the latter theme and the success of the smaller against the more powerful more populous outsider. Some of us might also jump to the victory over Hellenism. Adopting foreign ways was seen as something negative in some quarters in antiquity, so bad that defeating it justified the use of force. You might think any and all of these things, but I will question all of these assumptions in this short Devar Torah. Skip two paragraphs, Jeff, and go to where it says, not by might, 4-6. This is the word of Adonai to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but my my spirit, said Adonai of hosts. Our Hanukkah Haftar ends with the famous line, this famous line, the rabbis chose to end with a call to Zerubbabel, the heir of the Davidic kingdom to rule with the spirit of God and not to attempt force. This eloquent call for reasoned and non-military solution to political realities in a time when Israel was a conquered nation is a message that should not be lost, and it is one that has resonated in many quarters through the centuries. Pause. You can imagine someone reasonably lampooning this approach, lampooning Zachariah's message as high in the sky pacifism, blind to the real politic that without power, things don't get done. And what Professor Myers is saying, the notion that this message was specifically coming into a nation that had already been conquered and saying to them, even though you might think that the way to rise again is to, is, to, is, is, is to conquer others. I'm still asking you to conquer some of that instinct in yourself because if you're going to be a nation that's worth anything, and I would add, if you're going to be a person who's worth anything, even if it's possible, even if it's true that some of the things only get accomplished through, through force and through, and through human power, if you're going to be worthy of that power, there's got to be something else pulsing within you. There's got to be moments where you choose not to act out that power. There must be moments where you recognize what it's like for someone else to be the object of your power and you hold back. I've been thinking about this all week, my friends, since we're going to read the next two paragraphs in a second. Who in my life, I who like to think of myself as a humane person, a gentle person, a thoughtful person, I wield power, 
I can raise my voice. I have authority. I can snap my fingers and get something done when I need to. Who's experiencing that from me beyond what is necessary to get something accomplished? Who would like me, and I'm asking you to consider this for yourself, who would like me to be Zubavel, hearing this message from God and saying, this is not the only way to get something accomplished. It's naive, I think, to believe that wars are won and that battles are won with people just retreating to you know, a divine spirituality. But I also think that spirits and families and systems are crushed when it's only the military might or in a different setting, the, the, the human power and the power to force that drives things. And Hanukkah, according to the rabbinic story of why this Haftarah was chosen, is inviting us to consider that in our own relationships with the land of Israel and our own relationships with other people. Finish off, Jeff, why did the rabbis? Why did the rabbis intend for us to take away from the placement of this Haftarah on Shabbat of Hanukkah? First and foremost, we are encouraged to think about Hanukkah as more than a festival celebrating a miracle of lights and a military victory over the Seleucid Greeks. It is also a festival that celebrates the victory of the human spirit and the universal desire for peace at most any cost. Beautiful insight on his part, right? That, that the rabbis took a holiday where, where peace where, where, where peace was won through war and tried to turn it into a holiday of peace for peace's sake. Keep going. As we know from other sources, neither the Maccabees nor the Herodian successors rejected Hellenism. Rather, we know very well that, like the rabbis after the fall of the temple in the year 70, all embraced the contemporary world of Greco-Roman culture, which allowed Jews to prosper and thrive in a multicultural world. Second, let's also think like the rabbis about Hanukkah. Namely, that it is a festival that offers a way of peace and reconciliation, as articulated by Zechariah the prophet, whose name means God remembers. On this Shabbat, let us remember the lesson of the Persian period, pragmatic accommodation to a situation not desired can be accepted and made the best of. Even though a majority might have wanted independence from Persia, the practical solution to the situation allowed a relative period of peace to ensue for two centuries. And the temple whose rededication we are celebrating on Hanukkah was made possible by a non-Jewish king, a non-Jewish empire, who already had imbibed on some level the very message that God is giving through Zechariah to Zerubbabel. Which, some, which is, sometimes it is the non-use of your power, the non-execution of your might, and your own connection to your koach pnimi, your internal spirit, that is the most powerful way to live and the most powerful legacy you can bequeath to who knows how many generations. We still think about Cyrus and Darius 
There are a lot of ancient kings who lived in the 5th century BCE we know nothing about. We know about them because they allowed our people to come back to our land. They allowed themselves to not conquer everything that was conquerable. And they allowed a people driven more by spirit than by might to continue shining its light in the world. So on this Shabbat Hanukkah, as you think of either the national Jewish story or the very personal story that you're living right now, think very, very carefully about the voice you use, the power you wield, the restraint you ask of yourself, and the way that you allow a spiritual presence to govern what your life will have meant as you walked this earth and as you lived your life as a Jew and celebrated these holidays. So I thank the rabbis for choosing this Haftarah, for forcing us to consider Hanukkah through a more complicated and spiritual lens. I wish you all a Shabbat Shalom and a Chag Urim Sameach. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.